0: This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 104 of our digital leadership podcast produced by, for and about digital industry leaders. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Jeff Baird, Senior Managing Director of Value Creation at LLL Partners, a $3.5 billion private equity company based in Philadelphia. Prior to joining LLR, Jeff was an operating executive at Tailwind Capital where he assisted in sourcing, evaluating, and performing due diligence on investment opportunities. He previously served as president of the product and technology group at AGT International, where I first met him, CEO of 3i Mind, and vice president and general manager at Avaya. Early in his career, Jeff was the CEO of mobile technology firms Comtag and Extempus and COO of Scion Computing. He received his MBA with distinction from the London Business School and a BSc in Cybernetics and Mathematics from the University of Reading in the UK. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Uh, Thanks, Ken. Always uh, good to uh, connect with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: As well, as well. So uh, as as always, let's start with your professional journey. Tell us a bit about your uh, background and how it has informed your views of digital industry.
1: Yeah, I've, I started really uh, as an engineer, So, and I always say that within two years of designing computers, I realized that if you didn't sell something, it was pointless designing it. Uh, I'm not into the theoretical concept of uh, experimentation. And so my, my career then developed into how to, de- how to build um, companies and how to help those companies to, um, evolve. And that was, a, I would say, a 10-year journey of learning how to, and then 20 years of actually uh, working, running uh, businesses, and are now another a number of years investing and assisting companies in, uh, in running. Uh, it's always been in technology, right? Originally, with the computers, when IBM was the competitor and we were building uh, what were called uh, copycats of, uh, or clones of, uh, of IBM – and then rapidly moved into the mobile space. And I think moving into the mobile space was, that for me, the next generation of growth that was, was happening as, uh, as it became clear that you could put computing in the hands of people. And that was the start for me of understanding what digital transformation could be. Because if you could put computing into the hands and take it away from a heavy computer on a desk, then it became really valuable in all sorts of ways, whether it be in medical, whether it be accountancy, whether it be a professional, um, a professional just user. And of course, what we saw 15, 20 years later was the how it changed the world of the consumer. Um, and so that for me was the uh, was the foundation of understanding that. And then experience of networking and telecoms built the how do you connect it all? And so taking the computing piece and the networking piece created that ecosystem that enabled then not only to have the ability to have computing in the hand, but the ability to ad- that to adapt, change, and evolve as in the on the street, in the road, in the office, um, and that has been the foundation of then where I've gone. And of course, digital um, uh, industrial IoT and the digital world is a is then almost the. Uh, the natural outcome of those types of technologies is you militarize uh, technology, as you reduce the power consumption, you have batteries and the ability to then bring data into some form of center. And all of that was built over the last uh, 30 years.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I have um, probably a similar pedigree to yourself in the sense that uh, we both start as engineers and Momentum loves engineers. And in some sense, the systems, you know, developing the technology systems and then developing a system within the company and then developing a system of companies has been a natural path as well. So uh, no surprise to see you ending up in, in private equity where you're looking at kind of the meta systems, if you will, that make up technology companies that are made of technologies. I, and I love the fact that you have this kind of convergence, if you will, of both uh, mobile devices and um, and the connectivity, because in some sense that that is exactly what brings us to machine to machine and industrial IoT or digital industry, as we like to call it. So, you um, you had a string of early successes across emerging leaders in mobile computing and and voice over IP, um, Scion, extempus comtech uh, Avaya. What originally attracted you to this space?
1: So the the um, the evolution of of computing into a smaller form factor um, was fascinating to me. And to be honest, with Scion, which was my uh, my starting point that really drew me into that, was 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 also the fact that it was a British world leader. So it was a company in London start creating what was the uh, um, personal digital. Um, uh, device at that point, and then of course became, you know leading to what became Symbian and the smartphone, uh, and then I guess we would argue iPhone then uh, drove and changed the smartphone category again. But the 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 fascination of of what was possible in the hand. I mean, I was working in my, with Microsoft Technologies for not quite ten years before I joined Scion. and. You know, we used to build every, every year the application you build, Microsoft Word or, or Excel or whatever, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we would build in Scion, we would build an Excel um, type model spreadsheet that would be in a few hundred K of code. It was fascinating what was what was actually possible when you really put your mind to it. And so I think I was drawn into the, the application of technology, and the use cases and the potential of what could, uh, could, could happen. What of course was interesting is in moving to Extempus and Comtag, it became obvious it was all about the applications. It was all about how did you build what, do we, what in those days we called hosted, uh, nowadays is, is, a, is a true SaaS environment, which is building an application that could work in the cloud, could work remotely and make the mobile computing device that much more powerful. Uh, And so uh, Extempus uh, started in the uh, was in the gaming space, uh, interestingly doing uh, SMS gaming and those type of type of things. Um, And then we I migrated to uh, to Comtag, where we were doing essentially a direct competitor to Good Technology, if if you remember Good in those days, which was enabling the mobile worker and doing push email um, over um, over your mobile network into your handheld computer. Are working with Scion, working with Compaq and other type of devices. And that that journey um, and was a it was a natural one as you first of all understood what was possible through the core technology and then how software actually and the application was essential to that. Avaya was interesting because I had looked at and had been exploring the US market many times. You know, the UK is a fantastic um um, hotbed of technology ideas and creation and uh, applications. Um, and of course the U.S. is the market that just gives you a, homo- ho- homogeneous, a homogeneous market that can grow so fast. And so um, the, the opportunity to serve and work to work in that space was always interesting in, in that geography. And so Avaya was a space that I'd been looking at, Voice over IP. I actually ran a Voice over IP business in the late 90s When it really was just a startup, and that was a lot of my history, was working on uh, new ventures, new ideas. So voice over IP was was seen as almost impossible in the mid '90s in terms of of replacing uh, classic digital telephony, and Avaya uh, had, in five plus years later, really made that come to life, along with of course its competitor Cisco. And so I, uh, I joined because I saw the opportunity of bringing those two worlds together. And mobile was seen as a key piece of a via of connecting communications now from the desk to the mobile worker and essentially creating a seamless experience where you could just move back and forth between uh, uh, between the different uh, systems. And the idea of that being productivity, the idea of it being I can now work and look as if I'm at my desk, wherever I am. I'm on the golf course, but now I can communicate with people. I'm in the. Uh, I'm working. I'm working late at night. I want to go home. I'm now going to move from the desk to the mobile, and I'm going to keep keep those uh, that communication going. Uh, of course, that's now become ubiquitous for all of us. But in those days, it was uh, an exciting vision that we've uh, we've developed.
0: Speaking of uh, application of technology, and especially the dual vectors of mobile and and wireless. 2011, you jumped into the smart city space, uh, taking over as CEO of 3iMind, a big data deep web extraction analytics company focused on providing reliable, predictive intelligence offer to law enforcement, agencies, corporations, governments, and, and urban authorities. What inspired you to make this, um, I'd say, almost horizontal move in the sense, you know, moving into the solution space?
1: Yeah, it was interesting because as you as I worked at VIA, I ended up running a billion dollar business, and so as a result, I'm I was responsible for a large amount of the of the core infrastructure and the, and the core technologies um, in the in various sectors of the uh, of the business, um, and those uh, gave me a real appreciation for the need for data and the opportunity for data. And I think in 2011, it was very clear to all of us and to the industry that. Um, data analytics and the uh, application of machine learning and anomaly detection and other things was going to become a real uh, a real opportunity in the market and and ch- and change the way uh, we work and it still is uh, in that uh, in that sense going to uh, going to do that and so three i mind was a was a particularly interesting business because it was a as you said a big data deep web. Um, analytics engine, and it had been built out of the security space, but was at that moment uh, had just bought made an acquisition of a uh, corporate B two B business with the intention of bringing that technology into the uh, the corporate world. And so I uh, I joined specifically with the idea that um, these technologies were now going to we're going to now take us to the next uh, we're going to be the next growth uh, driver, vector of the, uh, of the world. And um, building those skills and building that capability would be valuable. And of course, by then, my skills were not what I would consider in technology. They were skills in how to run companies, how to run, manage teams, how to bring the right resources and assets to a, uh, a, a solution. And hence, uh, hence that move.
0: Mm -hmm. And you no doubt did well since the company was merged into AGT International, actually, where you and I met, um, where you you were president and GM of their product division. AGT was quite prominent, I remember, at the time in the Cisco IOE Ecosystems and Conferences or Internet of Everything, as they called it, which was, um, um, I guess, right around, oh, man, I have to say about 2014 timeframe. That's right. What were some of your key lessons at the front lines of uh, smart cities?
1: So it's interesting because when I, um, you know, as we merged into um, AGT, AGT had a successful um, infrastructure business that was serving um, on the edge of cities, uh, but serving a lot of oil wells, oil fields, et cetera. And what was, of course, when you get to a refinery, uh, of 30,000 plus uh, employees it's like a mini city and so we we found that there was a real opportunity and need to to develop and build services there and so we we developed into smart cities um, and that became a key uh, a key focus uh, of, of ours and I think what we um, what we what I, what I found from that was that a true it was a truly deep understanding of how the connecting of sensors, could build a digital footprint of the world and how this could then be used to react to needs. So, as you know already, of course, very well from the industrial AOT, you know, the natural instinct, to, the natural idea of being able to connect and monitor a, a fleet of trucks, a, a um, an oil uh, pipeline, et cetera, that those are obvious uh, opportunities. Um, in a city, you have so many different moving parts and the is that the um, management of those cities is trying to figure out how to optimize it. They're dealing with so many different factors. They're dealing with either population growth. They may be dealing with population decline. They're dealing with um, with uh, floods. They're dealing with traffic. They're dealing with um, security. They've got climate change to think about. They've got pollution to, to think about. And the kind of application... That we' that we know about of how it works in b2b is is, is highly relevant to the uh, to the city and I think that was one of the, the key lessons was that if you could manage if you could monitor your traffic in a more efficient way uh, sorry a, a, in a sharper way you could be more efficient at how you then managed your traffic and actually routed it in terms of pedestrians, Pedestrian traffic management can be done through mobile signals, through Wi-Fi signals, all anonymous, for example. So really interesting um, piece there of using sensors, physical sensors, and using soft sensors and bringing all that together into into a dynamic system. You already talked about a system of systems. The idea that uh, traffic has a system, um, license plate readers, for example, give out data and information originally considered to be used for um uh, for monitoring or for toll collection or for other things but in fact you could then use it for flow and for traffic flow uh, like i said mobile phone signals can give out information and give you an idea of how people are moving bringing all that together gives you the ability to then start planning it looks for hotspots, spots uh, uh, for blockage points or other things that extends into we worked in a number of cities where flood was a major issue. And so you could actually deploy um, various different sensors to, to monitor floods, but you could also look at traffic flows to see how they were reacting in bad weather, uh, because that would usually be an indicator. And so what happens is you 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 found that you could use machine learning, you could use that anomaly detection, and you could create predictive uh, you could predict predictive analytics. Now of course. What we did find from this is it's hard. <laughs> this is not a, um, a simple application of technology. The, um, you do need sensors. Um, you can use the soft ones we talked about, but obviously com- complementing that. That does mean that cities need budgets and they need to be able to deploy uh, those. And so what I fa- think I particularly found was that there is, this is a long-term um, program, I do believe that over the next ten plus years, it will become a greater uh, use uh, case and a repeatable um, model that can be uh, can be deployed. And it's almost essential, given that more population is going to move into cities, COVID notwithstanding, because that's that's good. that's a, a new curveball that we've not uh, we've not planned in. But I see the this is a long term plan which needs governments to provide budgets to be able to support it. And then I also think that business comes along and continues to provide innovative ways of doing it. And uh, startups are creating, continue to create and will create more faster, simpler ways of solving the problem using this all this third party data that is just building constantly. And data is a true sensor. Which I think is the probably the strongest learning I took away from smart cities.
0: Hmm. After um, AGT, you made the move from I'll say operator to operating partner, joining uh, Tailwind Capital, a three point seven billion uh, PE firm focused on healthcare, technology, business services, and industrial services. I should mention you you also joined Momenta as an advisor around the same time, and and have been an inspiration to us ever since. What led you to make the move into private equity and what were some of the surprises in it?
1: Yeah, and I have enjoyed immensely the uh, partnership with, uh, with Momentum. I think the, uh, the work you've been doing and just to watch how you've grown over the last um, uh, five plus years has been uh, a real joy to, uh, joy to see. I I was originally, um, had been in private equity in Avaya with, uh, with a Silver Lake and TPG as investors, but as an operator and experienced the, the process and in particular the benefits of value creation and, and longer term planning. We were not, we took, we came out of the public markets and we moved away from the quarterly model and we moved to a model that said, this is a business that needs to transform from a hardware business to a software business. And that takes a longer journey, and so I had valued what we had done there and the discipline that that, that, that had, uh, had had provided, and so it was an interesting and um, natural course to to start working closer with private equity as I uh, as I moved, in fact, from ADT International, which was in Switzerland, to a uh, back to a US-based uh, based role. Tailwind, of course, is different. It was it, it's small investing in much smaller businesses. But the learnings that I brought in were very valuable. I really fell into uh, Tailwind's private equity though. I was worked with them on a deal um, where I would become the CEO and continue to actually be an operator. But that deal as sometimes happens in private equity fell apart. Um, But by then I was advising them on other uh, technology uh, opportunities. And so I enjoyed bringing my skills, my knowledge and also my network to a portfolio of companies so much that I made the, uh, the move full time. I think the surprises for me was probably more of the biggest learning, was that I had spent the whole of my career working in companies that were trying to be globally number one in their category, sometimes successful, sometimes not, but always with that uh, that focus. And I saw that as fundamental to success. Working in private equity really led me to realize that there are hundreds of thousands of exciting businesses out there that create real value by being fantastic in their niche. They're either regional, they're very sector focused, or they even have a slice of the value chain that they, uh, that they provide a service business that enables the, uh, uh, the uh, wheels to, uh, to run. I sometimes say it's about providing the shovel, the, the handles to the shovels to the miners. Um, and it seems so obvious now, but after you've looked at 400 deals, which I've done, you get a real appreciation for the wider economy and the opportunities that that, uh, that, that provides.
0: We like to call that uh, base hits. Um, and we um, we we say, at least on our venture side, we do that as much, if not more, than unicorn hunting, um, you know, to use a ventures term there. All of this has culminated in your current role with LLR partner, serving as Senior Managing Director for the Value Creation Team. Can you tell us a bit about the company and your role within it?
1: Absolutely. LLR is a um, a $3.5 billion um, private equity, under-management private equity growth capital company. So we are focused um, at the lower end of the market on companies that have... uh, of high growth now and the potential for continued high growth in their sectors. We focus in the technology and healthcare sector uh, sectors, and, and we bring those uh, the, both uh, those two together in terms of um, capabilities. And my organization is focused on how to help those businesses grow. They are going through typically a scale-up change, Um, moving through from the original founder-led, maybe single-threaded focus, and have lots of opportunities in front of them. And so what I am doing is building a set of repeatable services that our portfolio can benefit from and building a team that can support those services. And the focus for all of that is how do we add value? How do we help a company... um, understand the opportunities around tripling its uh, growth around, uh, sorry, tripling the size of its company, around growing its uh, revenue streams and putting in the next stage of process needed for the next level of scale. And all of that is done as a founder friendly program. So our intention is to bring a set of services and capabilities that the CEOs and the founders can choose from and can work with us in a in a partnership um, model, so that we can be seen um, to provide them true support through the life of the uh, of the investment.
0: You, um, the last statement may have already spoken to this, but many of our listeners um, will think of early PE models primarily being focused on what I'll call sweating the assets of an acquired company, usually having to do with a lot of balance sheet exercises. Um, I think what you've just described is it gives a contrasting view of really what uh, value creation is um, and its balance on on top and bottom line. Um, would you say that the PE industry in general has completely moved to this value creation model now that you're you're discussing?
1: I would say that the industry is moving further that way. There is a fundamental understanding that financial engineering is is has got limitations in how much value it can create. And a lot of companies have become very good at managing and understanding how their ball- their bottom line and how to uh, to to to, uh, uh, to organize it. And so the industry is moving more that uh, more towards value creation, and there is a growth in the operating partner network and a and a growth in the type of services that that um, that that leads to. However, I don't think it's by any means a um, completely established um, process with every uh, with every firm uh, and I think there are still many firms that uh, consider that there's opportunity in the in the balance sheet and there's also a question of the investment levels that they choose the investment they choose to make um, in the services that, that, that they provide but I've definitely seen a growth in this area. Overall, it then has an interesting dynamic, which is uh, the classic model is called from a laissez-faire model to a prescriptive model of services and value creation that you can provide. Laissez-faire being really we let the management team just do it and we'll sort of every now and then dip in and out. And prescriptive being a a hard and fast rule-based system that says, you must do this, you must do that, you must put this system in to to help you. Um, The majority of the industry is sitting somewhere in the middle, uh, which is trying to find a way of of adding the most value without making it a um, highly prescriptive model, but without letting poor behavior or or, uh, opportunities uh, slip by.
0: You know, it sounds a bit how people, uh, larger corporations might describe digital transformation in that sense, at least where the catalyst of it is digital. And I imagine with a lot of your companies, it is as well. Do you find that the industry focus on digital transformation provides an arrow in your quiver of value creation tools?
1: I think I find that most businesses now are trying to, understand how they can lever technology to make their uh, make them more effective, whether it be for customers or internally uh, through remote automation, et cetera. So, most of our businesses are software-based and all our businesses are going through some form of digital transformation. Our services-based businesses are building out mobile solutions to help their customers. Interestingly, COVID accelerated this. So, you know, your medical uh, space, uh, it's obvious, you, would, you and I would argue, given, the, given our technology backgrounds, that, that mobile registration, uh, remote uh, form filling, et cetera, is something that, uh, that should, be, should, just be, be, should have been natural. Uh, that is now happening uh, with COVID um, in, a, in a very rapid way. And we, some of our technology companies have provide, provide those and support that. Are, um, are building that out, but so are our service companies and deploying it and the ability to have a virtual app to a microsite is all about how do you use those mobile devices and that communications network and the services around it to make a better experience, which is digital transformation. And I think the, 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 the focus on the industrial scale of this um, and the knowledge that that we've all got from the industrial scale potential is making that uh, very real and then the other spe- space i would say is that for us is in the medical space telehealth is also gr- growing rapidly um, and this leads heavily on those t- types of technologies and that ability to connect to uh, to users in a in a off uh, Uh, an um, off-the-network way or rather in a uh, remote uh, manner.
0: Mm. So, you've spoken about COVID and its impact on some of the industries you're focusing on now. Uh, Yeah, I love the fact the World Economic Forum has decided to use the term the Great Reset uh, as they refer to the long-term impact of COVID-19 pandemic. Let me ask, what do you see as the impact of this reset on private equity particularly?
1: So actually, I think private equity is a very adaptive business. So I think, on the whole, it just creates opportunities. I think that clearly there are sectors of the industry of the uh, world that private equity is invested in that have uh, challenges from the the reset from the retail sector, for example, or maybe real estate, that will will go through are uh, going through a, a, a substantial reset, and we don't know what, the, uh, what those industries are going to look like when they come out of it. And so private equity that's invested there will, will have some uh, have a, a path to navigate. But if you think of private equity in two ways, money that's invested and money that is waiting to be invested, there is a large amount of money that is waiting to be invested, and that is highly um, uh, adaptive. And so, I think the opportunities that come from this, whether they be growth opportunities because there is a new need, such as we talked about the uh, the, the the digital transformation world and the opportunities that that accelerates, or whether it's a, a challenging sector that needs to be restructured, I think that there is a real opportunity there. I mean the one thing that did happen is the whole industry triaged its portfolio in March and April and it all worked out plans for how, what it needed to do for its firms now obviously could any of us truly know what the situation in March and April was and what it meant it would be in uh, 2021 is is a, is a different question but what we all built is a way of adapting uh, sorry a way of monitoring a way of being able to uh, keep a tighter level of understanding over what was happening so that through the next uh, 12 months, we would be able to react faster to it for our current portfolio. And I think that it has really settled in now. And um, and the most firms have got a, uh, a good way of responding. What I think will happen is um, we're now looking at the new opportunities and the new deals, and we're of course factoring that in um, to the long term because that's how we, as, as private equity, we think for the long term. And therefore, it's how do we um, how do we invest going forward? I do think productivity um, has changed um, with, uh, or maybe productivity hasn't changed, but what's been interesting is that the remote manage the remote workers that all our firms have seen has demonstrated that uh, productivity can be maintained with a remote workforce. And I think that creates a different dynamic because previously, for example, we would be very sensitive to where was the workforce? How you know, could the intellectual property walk out the door? Was it, uh, did it feel um, connected to its company hub, for example? Um, whereas now, what I hear from from the industry, from the from CEOs, is that the fact that remote working works so well means that we can actually have access to a greater pool of, of, of workers, and we can have less real estate, and make all of that work in an effective, a very effective way. And I think that will also change how the, how we invest in companies and the type of companies that we invest in, and how we support them.
0: Mm, well said. Since uh, we operate in some sense um, at the other end of alternative uh, uh, um, investments, if you will, the uh, VC level versus PE, we've seen some very similar trends among our portfolio of companies as well, and all of them have done okay, if if not actually seen a a bit of a step up during this time, mainly because our thematic is you know remote asset management, and uh, and so by definition, you know those services are in greater demand and those products uh, that are in there as well so in closing we always like to ask about uh, you know providing recommendations of books and or resources that uh, inspire you
1: so i think in this covid world that we're in uh where we're we're working uh, like crazy hours and we're we're doing it from our home offices and so what i found is that the the time when i used to mentally switch off um I I think I was joking to you before the call, uh, when I'm standing in the security line or the door of the airplane closed um, is not there. I've actually would go back to something that still is foundational to me. um, And I also advise, you know, all my teams, which is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think the need to manage the vast number of initiatives, projects, ideas that come at us uh, and come at all of us as professional individuals developing in this uh, in this industry um, means that managing that is almost one of the most important skills that you need. Um, and so I think Stephen Covey is the, is for me was the, was the recommendation here. You also mentioned before resources. I will say that we are trying to build our own resources to serve our portfolio of forty plus companies. What we do is we 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 try to create a pool of knowledge a knowledge base that is accessible to them and so for me building that out is 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 inspirational because it's about delivering a service uh, to uh, to other people and to 10,000 other employees around the uh, around the, uh, the country um, so that's a that's a focus of mine but uh, but no seven habits of highly effective people is still for me 20 30 years later something that i uh, I I use regularly daily. I would say.
0: Mm, Yeah, in some sense, uh, this pandemic has taken us back to basics in a lot of different ways, and uh, and that's a, a great recommendation as well. Look, a special call-out um, because uh, I really appreciate the LLR thought leadership, and for those of you who don't know LLR, they do have a uh, great set of resources that they publish pretty regularly, and I, I open subscription to it, so definitely hit their website and, uh, and subscribe to that. Jeff, thank you for this insightful interview. It's really been a pleasure reconnecting back with you and getting to know the, I'll call it, the perpetual Digital pioneer that you are,
1: <laughs> Ken. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to share my my thoughts and uh, experiences, and uh, always enjoy uh, h- hearing your questions and getting the uh, thoughtful uh, inspiration that you uh, you provide me. So thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. So this has been Jeff Baird, uh, Senior Managing Director of Value Creation at LLR Partners. And uh, I'll say a perpetual digital pioneer and digital industry leader. Um, Thank you for listening. And please join us next week for episode 105 of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast Series produced for, by, and about digital industry leaders. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.